Well, it's with a great deal of joy that um, begin this morning's sermon series. We will be in the book of Nehemiah this fall. So if you don't know a whole lot about Nehemiah, you're going to get to know him quite well. And if you do know a lot about Nehemiah, you know how precious this book is in terms of Old Testament history and the way in which it prepares us for the coming of Christ. Because this is the last historical moment that is recorded in Scripture before Christ comes. There's some prophets that are prophesying like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi during these days. But as most of you know, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And then we head right into the New Testament. So this is the dawn before the dawn. We could say the setting of the sun before the dawn. Uh, it's at least the, the last point in Old Testament history. And it's not a pretty sight um, as we come to the book of Nehemiah. But as you'll see, God is in the business of renewing. And this is what's going to be the focus and theme for our fall time in Nehemiah is the theme of renewal. How many of you feel like that you need to be renewed these days? I know I do, for sure. And coming off a series of four sermons on the church, which was really focused on recommitment, I think in our souls and in our hearts it would do well for us to lean into the Lord for a season of renewal personally and corporately. J.I. Packer, in his excellent book, A Passion for Faithfulness, Wisdom from the Book of De Nehemiah, captures well the heart, my heart uh, as one of your pastors for this particular sermon series. J.I. Packer writes, The story of Nehemiah is a fascinating one. It deals with the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, the renewal of Jerusalem's worship, the repopulating of Jerusalem's streets, and finally the renewing of Jerusalem's renewal, which over the years had gone lamentably off the boil. So it is at the same time the very story of literally building up Jerusalem, namely the city of Palestine, and the story of spiritually building up Jerusalem, namely the covenant people of God, the Old Testament church. Nehemiah through God built walls. God through Nehemiah built saints. Humanly, Nehemiah is the key figure in both stories. He his book reveals him as a pastoral leader par excellence, devoted and dynamic, humble, zealous, wise, patient at every point, like Moses, Paul, Martin Luther, Oliver Cromwell, and Winston Churchill. Seeming a little larger than life by reason of the clarity with which he defined his goals and the energy with which he pursued them. From this standpoint, his book may be read as the record of a personal triumph of a pastoral and political sort, but equally it may be read as a witness to God's dealing with both Nehemiah and those he served in such a way as to work in them qualities of vitality, fidelity, bravery, tenacity, generosity, and maturity, qualities of godliness that God is constantly fostering in his church and that from our vantage point we recognize as Christ-like. This is undoubtedly the right approach. The book of Nehemiah then should be read as testimony to the renewing and sanctifying of the church. That's the way we're going to read it, as a testimony to the renewing and sancti sanctifying power of God in his people. May he grant that to us even as we spend time in his word this morning. So this morning we're going to talk about where renewal begins, where renewal begins in Nehemiah chapter 1. Three points to my sermon this morning. The first one is renewal begins by reckoning with reality. Renewal begins by reckoning with reality. As Larry helpfully summarized for us in the introduction, we can only understand the events in Nehemiah when we look back to God's words 
to Israel through Moses at the conclusion of Deuteronomy as Israel was on the cusp of entering the promised land. In those words, Moses foretells both Israel's exile and Israel's return. I don't have time to turn you to all of those passages, but if you want to look them up in your own time, you can look them up. Deuteronomy 4, 25 to 27, 28, 45 to 52, 29, 24 to 28, and chapter 30, verses 1 through 4. Over and over again in Moses' sermons in the book of Deuteronomy to the people of Israel, he speaks with great clarity regarding this issue. If you disobey the Lord, he will scatter you. If you repent and renew your covenant with him, he will regather you. If they broke the covenant, they would be exiled. If they renewed the covenant, they would be returned. Their presence under Persian rule at this point in the book of Nehemiah provided or proved that God's word had been fulfilled. They had disobeyed, they were exiled. They had sinned and they were scattered. So how'd they get there? How did Jerusalem get in this terrible condition? Well, the first of these deportations into exile took place in 722, when the northern, yeah, it's BC, when the northern ten tribes of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And the second took place in 586, when the southern kingdom of Judah was captured by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was sacked, the monarchy fell, Israel was deported to Babylon, rendering Judah politically, economically, and spiritually captive. In 538, though, about 50 years after they had been brought into captivity, Cyrus the Great invaded Babylon, and he ordered its conquest. Cyrus was the king of Persia. Cyrus enacted a policy that allowed for conquered nations like Israel to worship their own gods and establish some sense of independence as long as they paid their taxes and they remained loyal to the kingdom. That was something that was not permissible under Babylon. But Cyrus encouraged people who had been uprooted to return home and reestablish worship with the blessing and support of his government. The books of Nehemiah and Esther cover a little over 100 years from 538 when Cyrus sent the exiles home to reconstruct the temple um, to around 430 BC when Nehemiah exercised his second term of office in Jerusalem. After dying from wounds suffered in battle, Cyrus was replaced by his son, Cambyses II, in 530 BC, who died eight years later while returning home from a military campaign when he learned that someone had tried to usurp his throne. Darius I, one of Cambyses' officers, stamped, stomped out that insurrection and succeeded Darius as king of Persia in 522. And he upheld the edict of Cyrus, and under his rule, those who returned to Jerusalem completed the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. The next Persian king was Xerxes, also called Ahasuerus, who came to power in 486. He was the Persian king to whom Esther was married. Artaxerxes I, the third son of Xerxes, followed him as king in 464 BC. And it's to this king that Nehemiah serves as cupbearer. So with that brief survey of Old Testament history aside, I want to stress to you that the main action in the book of Nehemiah is crowded into a fairly brief period of time in the spring and summer of 445 B.C. It was during this period that Nehemiah made the journey from near the Persian Gulf 
to Jerusalem to physically renew the city, that is to restore its walls and begin to see to its defense. This is recorded by Nehemiah himself in the first seven chapters of the book that we will be walking walking through over the next couple of months. And then beginning in chapter 8 to near the end of chapter 12, another voice seems to take up the story to tell of the spiritual renewal of the people of Israel. Finally, the last chapter of the book deals with the dedication day, and we are left with some reminders that the battle is not yet won. But it will be as Christ comes into the world very several centuries afterward. So, with that historical background given, let's talk about the first three verses of Nehemiah. The events recorded in verses 1 through 3 take place at the end of the year 446 B.C., The reason why we know this is verse 1 mentions the 20th year. We read, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. This is a reference to the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, 20 years into his reign, which is about the midpoint of his reign of 40 years from 464 to 423 B.C. Chislev is the ninth month, that is November or December, um, based on their calendar. It's in the winter, which... It's not a huge difference in, uh, the per- in Persia at that point from summer, but it will be a little bit less in terms of intensity of heat. But Nehemiah mentions this detail that it's in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign in the month of November or December in Susa, the citadel or fortress, which was one of the royal seats of the Persian kingdom and was likely the summer or winter residence since it's in the months of November and December. In fact, in Ezra 6.2, Ekbatana was a royal summer home, and Susa is assumably a winter one. So although Nehemiah has this highly luxurious job that we're going to look at in some detail, in a secure, beautiful Persian resort, he is concerned for the welfare of the returned exiles and the condition of the city in which they live. This is all initiated by Nehemiah himself and not the men who come and visit him. It was in this time and place that Nehemiah learns of the problems in Jerusalem. Hanani, one of Nehemiah's brothers, comes with a group of men from Judah. We assume that they are, they are Jews, um, and we also assume that because Hanani is one of Nehemiah's brothers, that, he's all, that uh, Nehemiah is also a Jew. It's, in fact, Nehemiah is a Jewish name, not a Persian name, so... Um, This is all, again, initiated by Nehemiah. But Hanani comes with a group of men from Judah. It's not known whether these men are coming from Jerusalem, they live in Jerusalem, or they're from Persia. We don't know. But the report comes that Jerusalem is in great distress. Both the city itself and the people who live there. So notice where this renewal process is starting. It's starting by reckoning with reality, dealing with the situation as it really is, not putting on a happy face, not uh, trying to put your best foot forward or, or cast things in the best possible light, but getting a real assessment of what is happening. And Nehemiah mentions two things in particular. First, the spiritual condition of the people, which is primary, And secondary, the physical condition of the city. So let's look at those one at a time. Notice what he says in verse 
3. They said to me, the remnant there, referring to the Jews, in the province who had survived the exile is in two, two, two phrases, great trouble and shame. Those are the two phrases that Nehemiah uses to describe the spiritual condition of Israel. The first is great trouble. Now, this is perhaps the strongest word in the Hebrew language that depicts danger, disaster, distress, misery, calamity. It's bad. It's bad, which is why we insert in our English translations, great, great trouble. It describes a condition that is completely detrimental to life itself. Think about some of the things you've been seeing in Afghanistan these days completely detrimental to life itself. But the second word is shame. Shame. There's not only the external challenges of living in an undefended, demolished city, but also the internal struggles and stress and challenge of crippling guilt that accompanies that. Because remember, they're, they're living how they're living because of their sin. So there is crippling guilt and shame associated with that. Now that's partly spiritual shame for the fact that they have sinned and brought upon themselves this judgment from God. But it's also economic shame. It's political shame. It's looking at what used to be and people being able to say, yeah, I remember Israel like it used to be. That temple's gone. Those walls are down. Jerusalem is a shit. It's a, it's a, but a, but a, but a whiff, a, a piece of what it used to be. The word shame depicts reproach, disgrace, scorn, insult, contempt, and threat. Fighting without, fears within, as the hymn says. And this is exactly what the Lord told Israel would happen as a result of their sin. Ezekiel 5, 14 and 15, God told them, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgment on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord, I have spoken. That's the spiritual condition of the people. Great trouble coupled with crippling shame. But there's also the physical condition of the city. Notice verse 3 again. After Nehemiah is told of the spiritual condition of the people, he's relayed the physical condition of the city. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down into verse 3, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So just as Jesus, or just as Nehemiah describes the physical condition or the spiritual condition of the people in two ways. He describes the physical condition of the city in two ways. Broken down, destroyed by fire. I mean, can you think of anything worse? I mean, worst possible spiritual condition, great trouble and shame, worst possible physical condition. Broken down, destroyed by fire. Second Kings 25, 8 to 10 describes what happened. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. 
And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Still in that shape. Still in that condition. Even these decades later. 70 plus years later. Still destroyed. Still broken down. But I want you to notice something. People mattered more than things to Nehemiah. We confessed the sin of covetousness this morning, right? That was purely providential, not planned. But I think the Lord would have us be reminded again that people mattered more to Nehemiah than things did. Why? Because it's the spiritual condition that gets highlighted first. And it's the physical condition that gets highlighted second. That doesn't mean the conditions of the city aren't important. It just means that the condition of the people's hearts is far more important. The broken walls of the city represented insecurity and an exposure to imminent danger. While the condition of the walls revealed serious economic deprivation, it also revealed a shattered people who were demoralized and vulnerable, and these people were Nehemiah's concern. First and foremost, the people take precedence over the wall. What about us? The renewal of Jerusalem begins with dealing with reality. Let's deal with our own walls, shall we? Do we care more about the conditions of things than the hearts of people? Do we see people more as a collection of ideas than image bearers of God needing compassion and love? Are we using all that's going on internationally on the political scene as an excuse for political arrogance instead of Christian compassion and brokenheartedness? When we think first of Afghanistan, do we think first of the Christians there, or do we think first of politics? God, save us from thinking of politics first. The world does that. We care about our brothers and sisters, that we're going to spend eternity there. Got an email this week from a pastor's network that I'm in saying, please pray for a network of pastors in Afghanistan that I am closely connected to right now. They are not going to make it out probably unless God intervenes. That's, in a, that's a friend of mine who knows people there who are getting ready to be killed as a result of their faith in Christ if they don't get out. He said the U.S. is aware of them, but they may not act in time. Brothers and sisters, when our brothers and sisters are suffering, we should be like Nehemiah, and our hearts should break as well. We need to reflect and take inventory of our spiritual condition. How is the condition of your heart right now before God? Are you living in distress and shame due to your sin? Let's be open to what God has to say to us. Has selfishness, lack of discipline, procrastination, immorality, compromise, or rebellion left the walls of your soul in ruins? One commentator said, erosion is our constant battle. Little by little, bit by bit, the process is set in motion. No one suddenly becomes base. The process of moral decay begins when the first piece of mortar comes loose and one stone drops to the side which you let lie. Then another stone falls and another. Brothers and sisters, this condition of God's people here should lead us to think about our condition before God as well. James 4, 4 to 10, 
You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That is the path to renewal. If we're going to experience renewal, we need a serious assessment of our hearts before God. If our heart has grown cold toward Christ or toward his church, we need to deal with that problem now. And the chief way we do that is in our next point. So renewal begins by reckoning with reality. Secondly, renewal begins by turning to prayer. Renewal begins by turning to prayer. See, brothers and sisters, we can't renew ourselves. We didn't vive ourselves. We can't revive ourselves. By vive, I mean you didn't bring yourself to spiritual life. God brought you to spiritual life. And you can't renew that spiritual life unless God renews that spiritual life in you. And this is especially important considering the character of Nehemiah, who was known, as Derek Kidner, the commentary said, known for his bent to swift, decisive action. And his behavior here is remarkable. It shows where his priorities lay. Nehemiah is a man of action. He doesn't wait around. As you'll see in the very next chapter next week, Lord willing, he gets right into it. He's not procrastinating. He hears the report. He knows what needs to be done. But between that report and knowing what needs to be done, we get a chapter of prayer. Why do we get a chapter of prayer? Because unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchman labors in vain. In vain you rise up early. In vain you go to bed late, eating the bread of ancient toil. For the Lord gives to His beloved sleep. See, we we spin our wheels if we don't immediately turn to prayer. So after Nehemiah looked out with concern and compassion toward the plight of the people, he immediately looked up in dependence upon God in prayer. Nehemiah's immediate response to the news of trouble was not to get to work, but to get to his knees. To get into the presence of God. And this prayer is recorded in the bulk of the chapter, verses 4 to 11. And as we'll see throughout the book of Nehemiah, this practice is not occasional for him. It is repeated. It is a pattern throughout the book. The book begins with prayer in Persia, in verse chapter 1, and it ends in prayer in Jerusalem, in chapter 13. It's bookended by prayer. But even throughout the book, there are repeated uh, acts of prayer on behalf of Nehemiah and the people of God. We read in the story of Nehemiah all kinds of prayers from adoration in 8.6 and 9.3 and 5 to thanksgiving in chapter 12, verse 24, 27, 31, 40, and 46 to confession here in chapter 1 and also in chapter 9, verses 33 and 34 to petition in chapter 2, verse 4 to intercession in chapter 1, verse 6. There are prayers for protection, chapter 4, verse 9. Dependence, chapter 6, verse 9. Commitment, chapter 13, verses 14, 22, and 31. There are prayers ranging from expressing anguish in chapter 4 verses 4 and 5, 6, 14 and 13, 29 
to prayers expressing joy in 1243. In fact, one of the central themes of the entire book is prayer. It is through this practice that Nehemiah's perspective is widened, his vision is sharpened, his anxieties are squelched, and Nehemiah models for us that a godly life is one that's quick to present its griefs to God, confess its past failures, and discover God's heart for his future work. Now with that exhortation given, I want to look at several aspects of Nehemiah's prayer in this first chapter. Three, to be specific. Now, three specific aspects, and then I'm going to talk about some elements in between those aspects. First of all, notice the centrality of prayer. The centrality of prayer. For Nehemiah, prayer was natural, immediate, and spontaneous. We read in verse 4, look, right after we get the report in verse 3, People are in great trouble and shame. Jerusalem's broken down, destroyed by fire. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying. He went to prayer as soon as he heard their words. There was no gap. It was instinctive. For Nehemiah, prayer was not a conventional religious exercise. It was a vital daily experience. Brothers and sisters, is this... This is central in our lives. When we encounter difficulties, when we hear of an externally challenging circumstance, when we hear of an internal struggle, what's our first gut? Better get on the phone and call the doctor. Better write our politicians. No, those things are good. Prayer. Instinctive. First thing, let's bow our heads and pray now. Not now, we're not, but that's what we should do. If we're with somebody, we hear news, we need to pray about this. Let's pray. There was no gap. For Nehemiah, prayer was just that instinctive. T.J. Betts in his commentary writes, sometimes in dire situations people will say, I guess all we can do is pray. We should never say that. That's a last resort. It's no last resort for Nehemiah. Betts goes on and says, for him, it was his first option. When prayer becomes the first option for a person, it's an indication that he or she is truly walking with and depending on God in all things. So that's the centrality of prayer. Secondly, the characteristics of prayer. I want you to notice what his prayer was marked by. The first thing he prayed was, Lord, heal my ingrown toenail. No, and we should pray about those sorts of things. But I want you to notice the spiritual priorities. The first thing we see is that Nehemiah's prayer is heartfelt. Notice again, verse 4, he sat down and wept and mourned. He's deeply grieved by the great distress of the people and the great devastation of the city. He empathizes with the misery the people are experiencing. Is not this the heart of Jesus in Nehemiah? Remember Luke 19, 41 to 44? And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. Talking about Rome coming, 70 AD. And you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem the same way that Nehemiah is weeping over Jerusalem. See, brothers and sisters, true spiritual life involves getting on our hearts what God has on his heart. And what's most on God's heart is God's people and God's kingdom. That's what we see in verse 3. God's people, God's city. Who are God's people now? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's God's city now? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The church is on God's heart. The church ought to be on our heart. Let's ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his heart. Do we mourn and weep over the church and the state of the Great Commission more than the affairs of our nation, the concerns of our politics, and the loss of our sports teams? James Hamilton, professor at uh, Southern Seminary, says, if you care more about how your favorite college football team does on a Saturday than you do about how the gospel is advancing, that's probably because your identity is more shaped by the time you spent watching and talking about football than the time you spent studying the Bible. Which do you know better, the roster stats and prospects of your team or the content of the scriptures? Who do you feel more passionately about, the players on your team or pastors, missionaries, and co-laborers in the gospel? Which would give you more? Seeing your favorite team lose the national championship, grieve you more. Which would grieve you more? Seeing your favorite team lose the national championship or hearing about the plight of Christians in, a, in Afghanistan? J.A. Packer says, something is wrong with professed Christians who do not, ident- don't identify with the church, are devoted to the church, invest themselves in the church, and carry its needs on their hearts. This is Nehemiah. This is the first characteristic of his prayer. It's heartfelt. Second characteristic, Nehemiah's prayer is sacrificial. Notice, he doesn't just weep and mourn and sit, but he commits to fasting and praying. Verse 4. Now, fasting is a believer's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. When is the last time we ever fasted? Now, I know there are some medical reasons why some of us ought not to fast. I get that. But for most of us who are healthy, normal, um, when was the last time we fasted for anything? Jesus assumed that we would fast. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast. So brothers and sisters, maybe part of our renewal will be a recommitment to fasting, taking a breakfast or a lunch or a dinner or whatever. Start small, start realistic. Don't say, I'm going to not eat in the month of September. Well, we will not see you in the month of October. (laughs) Right? Just a little bit. Take a 30 minute, when you would normally... You know, eat a meal, focus on something to pray about. I need to do that too. We as pastors need to lead better in that, be a better example to you in that way. By fasting, Nehemiah is telling God, this is how much I want you to hear and answer me, O God. The desires of his prayers are greater than any physical desire his body might have. And finally, besides being heartfelt, sacrificial, and sacrificial, Nehemiah's prayer is persistent. He sits, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts and prays. And according to the text in verse 4 and verse 6, he does this for days. Day and night, he continued praying. And considering the events of chapter 2 start four months after he got this news, he'd probably been praying that way for four months. A third of the year. Think of taking the rest of this year to do what Nehemiah is doing. We are way too fast as Americans, aren't we? The reason we won't be renewed is because we won't wait on God long enough to get it. He waited four months. 120 days of nothing but prayer and fasting and weeping. September, October, November, December. What kind of renewal might the city of Owensboro see? if we did that for four months, right? His prayers were persistent. He's not going to give up. He's not going to give up. Brothers and sisters, 
we need, by God's Spirit, with God's help, to embrace some of Nehemiah's tenacity in prayer. His, his prayers are full of pathos, emotion, heart. His fair, prayers are full of sacrifice, and he's persistent. He is dogged and determined. He puts that widow to shame in some ways who was waiting for the crumbs to eat from her master's table. Although Nehemiah might say, she puts me to shame. But we need to be like that. Persistent, persistent, sacrificial, and heartfelt. Finally, look at the content of his prayer. Having examined the centrality and the characteristic of his prayer, let's now look at this briefly at the content. Nehemiah's prayer, first of all, is repentant. It's marked by confession of sin. In verses 6 and 7, look at verse 6. Let your heart be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So he confesses the people's sins. He confesses his own sin. He gets specific in verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. He's brutally honest about sin and makes no attempt to excuse Israel. He includes sins of omission and commission. He is urgent and intense. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be renewed, it's going to come through confessing sin. Specific sin. Ongoing sin. Patterns of sin. That we're going to acknowledge before the Lord together and individually. But net sex, secondly, Nehemiah's, not sex, there's nothing about sex in Nehemiah. Nehemiah's prayer is biblical, biblical. Nehemiah's prayer is repentant, Nehemiah's prayer is biblical. I mean this in two ways. First, he knows God's word well enough where he reminds God of what God said. Look at verse 8. Remember the word? <laughs> That's something to say to God. Remember when you said? Yes, God remembers. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, basically, if we're unfaithful, you'll scatter us, but if we renew and return to you, you'll gather us. He's quoting specifically from the book of Deuteronomy. His prayer is founded on God's word. Brothers and sisters, let the word of God be always in our mouth when we are praying. That doesn't mean everything we pray has to be scripture. But isn't it comforting to know that God doesn't expect us to invent things to pray about? Like he gives us help. He just wants us to plead his promises back to him. So not only is Nehemiah biblical in what he says, that it's full of the Bible, but it's biblical in the sense that his prayer is deliberately echoing the prayers of other people in the Bible, namely Moses, Solomon, David, Daniel, and Ezra. Nehemiah is not only inspired by their example, he's enriched by their language. Do you ever feel like your prayer life grows dull because you just feel like you're praying the same old things about the same old things? Take up the Bible! Read and pray the Bible. The Bible gives us language. The words that Moses and Solomon and David and Daniel and Ezra used, Nehemiah used. Our prayers don't need to be original. They just need to be biblical. The great prayers of Scripture ought to be incentive and models for us. They were for Nehemiah. Not only is Nehemiah's prayer repentant and biblical, but thirdly, it's hopeful. Nehemiah's prayer is hopeful. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. They, have your, they, ha, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He reminds God of his past redemption of Israel and their status as his servants currently. doesn't say used to be your servants, 
but they still are, which is a word Nehemiah uses eight times in this prayer. Servants, 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 servants. He thinks of himself as a servant. He thinks of Israel as servants. We need to think of ourselves as servants. While God is holy and judges sin, he's also merciful and forgives sin. While God scatters due to disobedience, he also gathers due to repentance. He reminds God in chapter 1, verse 5, that he's a God who keeps covenant. Look at verse 5. I, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He knows God has not given up on his people just yet. Nehemiah is expressing confidence in God. At the beginning of the prayer in verse 5, at the end of the prayer in verse 10, on the basis of God's character and God's promises that God will hear and God will act on behalf of his people to redeem, restore, and renew them. And that's Nehemiah's prayer. It's it's central. (coughs) It's repentant. It's biblical. It's hopeful. It's persistent. It's sacrificial. And (coughs) it is heartfelt. Thirdly and finally, let's come to the last point. We've looked at renewal begins by reckoning with reality. Secondly, renewal begins by turning to prayer. Thirdly, renewal begins by acting in faith. Notice the very end in chapter or verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. He's getting ready to act. He knows there's a, pl- there's a place to pray and there's a place to act. There's a time to pray, there's a time to act. But we must not act before we pray and we must give prayer time before we act. Nehemiah was preparing to face some huge obstacles. The first was his boss the Persian king. And you say, what's the big deal? He's close to the boss. He works with the boss. He could ask a favor of the boss. Not so fast. Artaxerxes, his boss, would need to overturn his previous decree that put a stop to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's in the book of Ezra. People from the house of Israel who'd been scattered had returned and reclaimed some of their land, including Jerusalem. And shortly after their arrival, they had set out to repair the walls and rebuild the temple, but their efforts were thwarted by the false reports of their enemies who claimed the returned exiles were planning to rebel against the king as soon as they were able. So Artaxerxes gets this false report. He shuts down the construction project. This is recorded in Ezra chapter 4 if you want to read it this afternoon where we see the local opponents write to the king, stating that the citizens of Jerusalem were intent on rebellion, and as a result, the work of the walls had ceased. Now you say, what's the big deal? Overturn it. Overturn the veto. Do something else. Well, it's not as that simple. The kings of Persia were normally permitted to rescind a decree, not normally permitted to rescind a decree once it had been enacted. For For instance, I'll give you two examples. King Darius, in the book of Daniel is distraught when he discovers that Daniel was put in the lion's den. Why? Because of the king's edict. When Darius seeks to release him, Daniel's enemies reminds him in Daniel 6.15 what? Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. We sometimes joke about that. It's not the law of the Medes and Persians, kids. This can be changed. This can be revoked. This can be, well, 
not this law. Do you see, you see what Nehemiah is up against? He's asking for an edict to be overturned that's against the law. At least against some sort of formal, understandable structure that exists in the kingdom. So what moves them to act in faith, to go to the king to make this request, as we'll see next week? Two things. And with these two things, I'm going to conclude. First, he recognized God's greatness. He recognized God's greatness. How do we know that? You inventing stuff again, Pastor Mark. I don't see it in the text. Let's look in the text. It's there, I promise. Look at right before he says, I was a cupbearer to the king. What does he say? Grant me mercy in the sight of King Artaxerxes of Persia. What does he say? Say it. This man. This man. He refers to one of the most powerful kings in the world as this man. Well, how can he do that? He just got praying, got done praying to verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. When you pray to the great and awesome God, the king of Persia becomes this man. All people are under God's authority, including the great king of Persia. Nehemiah understood Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Above all earthly kings is the king of kings. Above all earthly gods, quote lowercase g, is the great and awesome, capital G, God. Nehemiah refers to him as the God of heaven. This is an expression of the universal supremacy of God over all things. Nehemiah knows that God is great and awesome. He's not remote. He's not distant. He's the God who holds the universe under his sovereign sway. Nehemiah was utterly convinced that God is universally sovereign, totally reliable, utterly holy, compassionately merciful, uniquely powerful, infinitely gracious, intimately near, and completely just. And it's that knowledge of God that emboldens Nehemiah to act in faith. And brothers and sisters, it does the same for us. (laughs) When God calls us to act in fearful situations, in difficult situations, what will get us there is the fear of the Lord. What will get us there is the greatness of God. What will get us there is this God who acted in the past can act now in the same way. This God who redeemed in the past can redeem now. This God who redeemed this person's wayward children can redeem my person's wayward children. This person who saved me can save them. We recognize God's greatness. Second, the reliability of God's promises. See, the book of Nehemiah shows that God's word stands firm. God's steadfast covenant love to his people that he references in verse 5 shows itself in both the fact that there's still people there. Think about that. There are still people in Jerusalem. Seventy years after deportation, two other um, efforts by Zerubbabel and Ezra to send people back. There's still people there. What's that a sign of? God is faithful to his covenant promise. He told Abraham that he would have a faithful seed. And it's a great mercy and an an expression of the fulfillment and commitment of God to his promises that people are still there. Isaiah and Jeremiah both prophesied that a remnant of Jews would survive the exile and return to the land. 
Nehemiah remembers that. Nehemiah hears the report, and the first thing he thinks is there's still people there. God still keeps his promises. God hasn't forgotten about his people. Secondly, not only is the remnant of people an expression of God's promise, but also the return to the land. Remember, God had promised that after their captivity, the people of Israel would be permitted to return to the land of Israel, and they have been doing so. The return has taken place in three waves, as we noted. But also, God has been sending prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. He's not dropped off his word. And this third wave is going to be led by Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows that God is reliable to keep his promises. And he sees that God has providentially put him in the proper place to act. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. It is no accident that he's in this role. As a servant of the king, Nehemiah was aware from court news that this one innocent attempt to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem during Ezra's day had been frustrated. Now Nehemiah recognizes in his position some ability to reverse that ruling. Nehemiah is a high official in the royal household. His basic job as cupbearer is to choose and taste the wine that the king would consume to ensure that it was not poisoned. So this gave him frequent access to the king, made him a man of influence with the king. The wine steward was a man of recognized dignity, viewed as a confidant who was entirely trustworthy next to rank of princes. What God, what a God we have. He put Nehemiah there. This is God's work on behalf of God's people. Praise the name of the Lord. Yet the promised vision has not been completed. God has not brought his people, according to Ezekiel 28, back to the land to dwell securely in it, is what Ezekiel says. So about 90 years have passed since the first exiles had returned. Up to this point, the prosperity and security of which Ezekiel spoke had yet to materialize. Nehemiah looks out and says, now's my opportunity. God may yet act in such a way as to decisively bring his people back. And so this promise in Ezekiel fueled Nehemiah's hope. But even in Nehemiah's day, it wouldn't be fulfilled the way Ezekiel had prophesied it. As one commentator says, this prophecy reaches far beyond a mere temporal restoration. It points to times of more permanent security when from all nations and kingdoms the church of Christ, the Israel of God, shall be gathered in, when the power of the world shall be forever broken and the kingdom of Christ shall be established forever. See, Nehemiah is ultimately about a respite, a renewal of God for his people in preparation for the fulfillment of his covenant through Jesus Christ. Nehemiah is the bridge. He's building the bridge to get us to Jesus. Nehemiah's very name contains this. What does Nehemiah mean? Yahweh has comforted. He's doing it now in Nehemiah. He will do it in a greater way when the greater Nehemiah comes. Through Nehemiah, he brought comfort and relief to his people. And through a greater Nehemiah, the Lord Jesus, God brought us a much greater comfort. See, just as Nehemiah sat in solidarity with Israel in their distress... So the Lord Jesus sat with us and wept and mourned with us in our distress. His heart was affected by our condition. Read gentle and lowly, people. His heart loves you, not just his hands. His heart is engaged with you. 
Though we, like Israel, have sinned and broken God's law and reaped a deserved judgment from God's hand, Christ, as an expression of God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, has come to us. Acknowledging our sin and confessing that we have broken His law and are deserving of His righteous judgment, we repent and turn again to Him and find Him to be a God who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And through that confession and repentance, God restores us to right relationship with Him. This is where renewal begins. With Jesus. So brothers and sisters, have we reckoned with the reality of our sin and its consequences? Have we turned to God in desperate prayer for His forgiveness and His redemption? Have we cast ourselves by faith on the only one who can do helpless sinners good? If we have, and so many of you have, you have experienced the comfort of God Himself. And if you haven't, I invite you into that comfort this morning, even right now. Your sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for the journey that we're getting ready to embark upon as we study this precious book of your word, which is a portrait of renewal for your people in those days and points us to Jesus, points us to the the real solution to the great trouble and distress in which we find ourselves. Lord, our problems are far worse than a broken down city. We have sinned against the holy God and we are deserving because of that sin of an eternal hell. But Christ has stepped into our place, lived the life we could not live, died the death we should have died, rose victorious on the third day, conquered sin and death in the grave that we might be ransomed, rescued, redeemed, restored. Thank you for your work for us as your people. Renew us in these days. Call our hearts afresh back to you. Put our hands to work in your kingdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.